0: This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at PayPal
1: it's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Uncertainty is ingrained in our lives, whether we're running a business, building a career, raising a family, or going to school. And now, during the pandemic, new fears emerge all the time. How do we keep fear from paralyzing us? And why is it so pervasive? John Hagel is the author of The Journey Beyond Fear.
2: The key focus in my book is how do we cultivate emotions of excitement and hope that will drive us forward, that will help us to make actions that will have impact in spite of the fear.
1: When fear keeps us from moving forward, Hegel says there are ways to get past it. Ahead, he describes how. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from Aspen Ideas Now. When fear holds us back, we miss out on opportunity and a chance to realize our full potential. Alison Levine has faced fear many times in extreme environments. She led the first American Women's Everest expedition, climbed the highest peak on each continent, and in 2008 made history when she skied nearly 600 miles from West Antarctica to the South Pole. Here's Levine in her tent during that trip.
3: This has been home for me for the past four weeks. It's small, and it's a huge mess, much like my apartment at home. There is the stove where I cook my dinner.
1: There's a pot full of ice, so that's the ice that I melt so I can have hot water. Levine speaks with author John Hagel and Aspen Ideas To Go producer Marcy Krivenin about the role of emotions in fear, why fear is on the rise, and how to conquer it in all environments. Hegel begins by talking about his childhood when early fears developed. He grew up in a dysfunctional family where his mother had rage attacks. Back then, he thought the only way to survive was to serve the needs of others, and that mindset stayed with him for a long time.
2: But I had within me a hunger for hope and excitement, and without really being conscious of it, one of the things, this was now 41 years ago, I was uh, drawn to move to Silicon Valley And uh, there were a number of reasons for it, but a key reason was the sense of optimism that I found in Silicon Valley. Everybody was talking about opportunities, the things we could do with this amazing new technology. And that excited me um, because they were focused on opportunities. And ultimately it was a long journey, but in my early fifties, I went through a divorce, which was a crisis in my life. was a catalyst for me to evolve my personal narrative and really focus on that my needs did matter. And it was focusing on the opportunity for us to come together on the edge um, and overcome our fears so that we could create platforms that would help all of us to learn faster together. And that's really been what's driven me since. And it's been a sense of excitement about that opportunity rather than fear that's really guiding my life
0: now. Right. And you mentioned several words in there, catalyst, journey, narrative, and those are all um, parts of your book. And we'll sort of get into that um, later in the conversation. But, you know, you faced fears of your own uh, growing up and um, just, just like we all do throughout the course of our lives. What kinds of fears are people facing today?
2: Well, obviously, at one level, we all have individual fears that that we focus on, but I think broadly, and the catalyst for me to write the book three years, start writing it three years ago, was the sense that there was increasing fear around the world, and that it was driven by long-term forces that are reshaping our global economy and society, and many ways of describing it. But one one element of these forces is it's creating mounting performance pressure on all of us. Competition is intensifying on a global scale, not just for companies, but for individuals. We're competing more intensely for jobs now. Pace of change accelerating. And so things we thought we could count on are no longer there. And then because of all this connectivity we've created on a global scale, small events, often a faraway place in the world, cascade into extreme disruptive events that leave us all scrambling to figure out what to do now. Dare I mention pandemic, (laughs) that's just one example of these kinds of extreme events, but those combination of all of those generates, there's a natural human reaction of fear to that situation. And it differs again, depending on on your situation. So I, I often talk about the boomer generation are approaching retirement or in retirement, the great news is they're going to live a lot longer than they thought they were going to live. The bad news, they didn't save for a much longer life. So there's fear. What am I going to do? And then you've got the, the other side, the Gen Z population that, again, many forces, but one key force is the increasing cost of education, the burden of student debt. There's a lot of fear there. How am I going to pay all this off? But I'll just finish too to say I think there are fundamental forces driving fear. There are also forces that are feeding the fear. And I talk about the news media. You know, I ask people, when was the last time you heard a news report about a good event somewhere in the world? It was all about the catastrophes, the disasters somewhere in the world where people died. It's all about the world is, is falling apart. And then just to add to this, uh, again, I'm going to generalize, and but I think across the world, politicians increasingly are focusing on what I call threat-based narratives. It's all about the enemies coming to get us. We're all going to die. We need to mobilize now and resist, or we're going to die. And they're feeding the fear. You know, when what politicians are out there saying, what extraordinary things could we accomplish if we all came together? That's missing from the, the political discussion.
0: right. Yeah, we live in a time where information is so abundant and it can easily exacerbate uh, the the kinds of fears that we all feel. You mentioned performance, and um, Allison, you have had many amazing performances throughout your life um, doing these, uh, expeditions across the world. And, you know, I watched a video of you in a tent, I think in Antarctica, where you were like melting snow or something and talking about yes. frostbite. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you have faced fears in some of these extreme environments that you've explored. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the fears that you've faced in those yeah, situations? Yeah, sure.
3: So first of all, I also want to mention one of the reasons that John's book really resonated with me is because I had a very similar experience with my parents as a child, the same type of dynamics going on. So I can appreciate where a lot of the stuff that you write about comes from. Um, But managing fear is just an important part of going through life. And for me, what I've had to realize is that fear is a normal human emotion and I've learned to use fear to my advantage because fear keeps me alert and aware of everything going on going on around me when I'm in a situation that presents a great deal of risk. So, for example, uh, the Kumbu Icefall—that's an area on Mount Everest between Base Camp and Camp One. So it goes from about you know 19,000 feet to 21,500 feet. And it's basically 2000 vertical feet of these big, huge moving ice chunks. And the ice chunks are massive. They're the size of small buildings. And what happens is the sun comes up and everything in that icefall starts to melt. So you're in constant danger of being crushed as these humongous chunks of ice are, are shifting around. And then there are these big openings in the glaciers called crevasses, um, where you could fall hundreds of feet to your death. So you're in this ice that is one of the most, it's probably the scariest place I've ever been. And the environment is constantly shifting and changing as the sun warms everything up. And I, the first time I went through that ice and you go through it multiple times because when you're climbing Everest, you don't just climb straight up the mountain, you climb up part way, then you have to come back down to acclimatize climb up higher, come back down. So you go through that same section of the route multiple times. We went through it eight times and every single time it was scary for me. But what I realized is I just tell myself, look, fear means if I'm scared, it means I'm paying attention and fear is only bad if it paralyzes you, right? Complacency is really what puts you at risk. When you're complacent, in an extreme environment like Mount Everest, especially in the Kumbu Icefall, that is incredibly risky because that's when you stand a, a much stronger likelihood of being crushed by one of those big blocks of ice or falling through a crevasse. So I just tell myself fear is okay. Fear is okay, it's just a normal human emotion. Complacency is what will put me at risk. So I've also just learned that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can, you can be scared and brave at the same time. And you don't have to, it's okay to acknowledge fear. You just don't let it paralyze you. So that's really how I process fear. When I feel it, I think, okay, I feel scared. That's all right. It means I'm paying attention because this is kind of a scary place, this kumbu icefall, and it's going to keep me on my toes. And just because I'm scared doesn't mean I can't move forward.
0: Right. Wow. I, you know, many of us have never been in such uh, a scary situation. So it's um, just thinking about those kinds of risks and how close you are to death is um, chilling. You know, John, you talk a lot about emotions in your book and how they shape our choices and actions. Um, For you, Allison, can you talk a little bit about the role of emotions and, and the role, you know, that they played in those most fearful moments that you encountered? So
3: what's, interesting to note about extreme environments. So I'm talking about environments where there's a lot of risk and where health and safety is on the line. Um, what's, what's unique about these situations is that emotions are very much heightened. So things that might not bother you so much at sea level will really, really, you know, irritate you when you're in a remote extreme environment. And something that, you know, might you might not really acknowledge that much can make you incredibly happy in one of these environments. So all emotions are heightened, whether they're positive emotions or or what we would see as more negative emotions, like fear or sadness or feeling homesick or feeling, you know, isolated or anything like that. So you have to really take good care to keep your emotions in check and they always say like don't don't ever make any really important decisions when you're when you're on an expedition like this because when you've been away from civilization when you've been away from people you love when you've been away from the everyday comforts of home um, it's easy for your head to go to a very dark place so I I keep that in mind. And when I have people on my team or people around me or just people that I meet, um, you know, at base camp on the mountain, when I see somebody that's going through a tough time, I really, really make an effort to give them a pep talk and try to infuse some positivity into the situation. Because what I've found is that In these extreme environments, and look, you could argue that today we're all in a remote extreme environment, right? With risk, with inherent risk, right? This COVID situation, we're working from home, our offices, things are still closed. So what I've learned is that a few kind words of support can completely change the outcome of a situation for somebody. And again, just realizing people's heads can go to a very dark place. And sometimes just being a person who can share a few kind words with somebody who's struggling, you can really have an incredible amount of impact. So that is something that I really keep in mind when it comes to these extreme environments and how to keep emotions in check and just realize when I feel really upset about something, you know, look, I need to think about the fact that I'm in this remote extreme environment and that may be what is making these emotions feel so exaggerated right now. And would I feel the same way if I were at home? So you have to dig a little bit deeper when you start feeling these extreme emotions. But for me, the most important thing is to keep in mind that I I have the power to change the outcome of the situation with a few kind words, with some support, with just letting somebody know. I've seen people on an expedition who are ready to quit. And if I can just sit with them for 10 minutes, 15 minutes and talk to them, sometimes just feeling like somebody
0: cares can make all the difference in the world. And John, do you have anything to add when, you know, when it comes to fear and emotions? I, I, you know, this is sort of like a, a key point of your book, it, maybe in particular in an extreme environment context, like Allison is describing, or or in any uh, context, you know, she mentioned that we're all dealing with kind of the pandemic and which presents kind of an extreme environment for all of us. Talk a little bit about emotions and fear.
2: Yes, no, I, well, I agree completely with what Allison said in terms of the fear being a very natural, understandable emotion and in the right ways can be a very helpful emotion, but it has to be balanced. And, and the key focus in my book is how do we cultivate emotions of excitement and hope that will drive us forward, that will help us to make actions that will have impact in spite of the fear. And again, the fear can help us to really manage those actions. So we we do it in the best way possible. But on the other hand, without that excitement, that drive to say, I need to do this, I have to do this, even though I'm afraid, and I'm excited about it. It's not that I have to do it, it's that I want to do it, and I'm excited about it, that in my view, actually, is really the key to the kind of extreme performance that, that people like Allison have accomplished throughout their lives. I can see, see the excitement in her just as she talks. I mean, it's, it's there.
0: Yeah. And Allison, I mean, have you seen how excitement plays a role in, in somebody who is in, encountering fear on an expedition, kind of like moving them forward?
3: Yeah, I think um, so. First of all, our, uh, I'm, Our brains contain these specialized cells called mirror neurons, and they actually mimic the emotions of the people around us. So when people around you um, feel positive that, you know, that that term emotional contagion, it's a real thing. It's um, there's science behind that where your attitude and your emotions can spread to the people around you so when you're positive and enthusiastic that makes the people around you feel more positive and enthusiastic and science and research has shown that positive happy you know teams are work more efficiently and happy people live longer and experience better health and so um, just you know being a positive person trying to find the sunshine in a dark spot that can really have a uh, incredible impact on the people around you and and so to be able to keep a good attitude when things are tough, that can really help a team in its entirety. Now that said, I also want to touch on the topic of authenticity. like you don't want to pretend everything's rosy when the you know what's hitting the fan, right? but what what has really helped me a lot is knowing that when I'm feeling fear, when I am struggling, that I'm not alone. And so I remember this one expedition in Russia where uh, it was, you know, probably day two, day three on the expedition. I was really struggling. And our expedition leader, like, we stopped for a rest break and the expedition leader said, how's everybody doing? How's everyone feeling? And everyone's saying, great, great, great. And I'm thinking, I have a terrible altitude headache. I feel like I'm going to vomit. My quads are screaming. I don't know how I'm going to even get through the rest of this day. And everyone was saying, oh, we're doing great. We're doing great. And then our team leader this amazing, amazing mountaineer named Vern Tejas. He said, oh, I guess I'm the only one that you feels like puking right now. I guess I'm the only one whose legs don't want to go anymore. And, and as soon as he admitted that he was struggling, it made me feel like I was normal. It made me feel like there was nothing wrong with me because when everybody was pretending everything was okay, I just was thinking, what's wrong with me? How come nobody else thinks this is hard? I trained, I prepared. Why am I the only one struggling? And it it kind of shook my self-confidence a little bit. So when this leader, this amazing guy, this incredibly talented climber said, oh, guess I'm the only one that feels like puking. It made me feel so much better. So there's a difference between pretending things are rosy when they're not um, and just being honest, authentic and vulnerable. I think showing that vulnerability can actually help when leaders do that, it can actually help teams. So when I say like, keep a positive attitude, um, try to have a good outlook, it doesn't mean to pretend things are okay when they're not. It just means to give people hope, right? Like, Hey, this is really hard. This is hard for me too. Every step for me, is a struggle and I feel like I wanna quit, but you know what? I'm just gonna put one foot in front of the other and keep going and that's all you have to do too. You just have to put one foot in front of the other and keep going and you can help people build that resilience, right? And just that sense of getting to the top of the mountain when you can picture it, what you have to realize is you don't have to be the fastest. You don't have to be the strongest. You just have to be relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. That's all it is. And so, you know, when I say to, to be positive, to share some support with the people around you, it doesn't mean to be fake or to sugarcoat things. It just means to say, look, this is all hard, but we're going to make it. Cause I know we can, I know we can do this and we're all going to lean on each other and help each other. And we're going to be okay. Like that's the kind of positivity that I think can really change the outcome for people in the, you know, when they're feeling extreme fear.
0: This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers that limit opportunities for long-term wealth creation. The global pandemic has impacted vulnerable populations and underserved communities especially hard. PayPal believes that financial health and security is an essential foundation for people to pursue a better future for their families and communities and to join and thrive in a more equitable global economy. Everyone should have access to affordable, convenient, and secure financial services, and PayPal is committed to fulfilling this mission by championing equality, diversity, and inclusion inside the company and outside. PayPal is working to address the economic underpinnings of racial inequality. Learn more about how PayPal is helping to close the racial wealth gap by supporting, sustaining, and investing in Black-owned businesses and communities. Visit the newsroom at paypal.com. And, John... Speaking of positivity, your pillars of positivity. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they might apply in an extreme, ex, you know, exploration context, or um, or maybe in a context in which we can all all relate to? Um, yeah, just maybe explain a little bit um, about those pillars, if you would.
2: Yeah, it comes from my own, again, personal journey as well as research that I've done over decades, but I've ended up focusing on what I call three pillars, and at the high level, they're narratives, passion, and platforms, and the challenge I have is that using those words, everybody has a different meaning than I have for those words, so I have to make an effort to really clarify what I mean by these three pillars. So narrative, for example, you know, many people view narratives and stories to mean the same thing. For me, stories are very different. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end to them. The end, it's over. And the story is about me, the storyteller, or about some other people out there. It's not about you. You could use your imagination, figure out what you would have done, but it's not about you. In contrast, a narrative, the way I think about it, is unresolved. There is no resolution. There's some kind of big threat or opportunity out in the future, not clear whether it's going to be achieved or not. And the resolution of the narrative hinges on you. It's a call to action to say your choices, your actions are going to determine how this plays out. And I believe we all have personal narratives. I think very few of us have made the effort to really even articulate it to ourselves. And in my experience, when people articulate it, they find that actually their view of the future is primarily driven by threat. They're they're afraid of something out in the future. And as a result, there's very little call to action because they're afraid and they don't don't trust anyone else. They don't wanna have to rely on anyone else. They wanna just do it themselves. And in contrast, I think an opportunity-based narrative focuses on a really inspiring, exciting opportunity and calls others to help to address that opportunity. And so I think making that transition from threat to opportunity-based narratives is a key in, in the journey beyond fear. And it helps us to, it becomes a catalyst to identify a very specific form of passion that I call the passion of the explorer. And it's, it's a passion where you're driven to have more and more impact in a particular area because you're excited about that impact and you're excited about the challenges you're facing because it's an opportunity to have more impact. And you're connecting, your your instinct is to connect as much as possible with others to help you address those challenges. So I think when people finally discover that passion, they are are able to accomplish amazing things and, and move in spite of the fear. And then finally platforms help people to come together and do learning around it's, it's not, it's a very different kind of platform from what we have today. It's platforms that are focused on helping all of us to learn faster by creating new knowledge together. And I, I very much resonate with Allison's comments around my experience is people who are driving to extreme edges of performance, do this typically as part of small groups, three to 15 people in, in my general sense where they have deep trust-based relationships with each other. And to her point, you know, are supporting each other when when things get rough, but also challenging each other to say, maybe we could go the next step. Maybe we could do something even better. Let's work together to figure this out because they're excited and that excitement becomes contagious. So I think ultimately that's what really is gonna help us on the journey beyond fear.
0: We talked about how these pillars apply within the context that Allison is used to, but they're also very applicable to the world of business. Can you talk a little bit, John, about how this might play out in an organization?
2: Sure. I mean, I, I think there's huge relevance in the business world in the sense that, again, all businesses and all people are encountering this mounting performance pressure. And my experience is the fear is becoming more and more more widespread in organizations. And unfortunately, I think leaders sometimes tend to play to the fear. So one of the things that I hear a lot when, when leaders are trying to change businesses is the burning platform. If we don't change, we're on a burning platform, it's gonna collapse, we're all gonna die. That just increases the resistance to change. Because in my experience, the biggest resistance to change is fear. If you're afraid, you don't want to take any risk. You want to just hold on to what you have and do what led you to success in the past. So I think that's the biggest barrier that businesses are facing in a world that's rapidly changing is how do we get people to embrace change and be excited about change versus afraid of it? And in that context, I think that again, I go back to one of the pillars, the passion of the explorer. I've been a strong proponent in the business world. How many of our employees have this passion, this excitement about getting more and more impact in the work they're doing? You know, I actually did a survey of the U.S. workforce. So I didn't just think about it. I actually went out and asked the U.S. workforce and I didn't ask if they had the passion. I asked about specific behaviors and attributes that would indicate passion of the explorer. It turns out at best, 14% of the US workforce has this kind of passion about the work they're doing. 86% do not. And the challenge is we tend to, you know, in business, again, I'm gonna generalize, but the big focus in business is on worker engagement. And definitions differ again, but. Broadly, worker engagement means do you like the work you do? Do you like the people you work with? Do you respect the company you work for? Great, that's fine. And there's evidence that if if you have an engaged worker, they perform better than disengaged workers. But there's nothing in that about an excitement and commitment to getting more and more impact through change. That's what passion is all about. And actually engaged workers often are resistant to change. You come and tell them they're gonna, you're gonna change the work they do, they say, wait a minute, I like the work I'm doing. I like the people i work. working, don't change anything. And so I think, again, we need to shift the focus to cultivating passion within the businesses. And unfortunately, I think most businesses today are very suspect of passion. Passionate people ask too many questions. They take risks. They deviate from the script. We don't want passionate people. Leave your passion at home, pursue it as a hobby. But I think that the reason I'm, I'm so passionate about this for business is at the same time as we talk about mounting performance pressure in business, the same forces are all also creating exponentially expanding opportunity. We can create far more value with far less resource far more quickly than would have ever been imaginable a decade or two ago. But if we're driven by fear, we can't even see those opportunities, much less have the motivation to pursue them. So until and unless we cultivate that that excitement about having more and more impact, I'm afraid we're in, in business is going to be under more and more pressure. It becomes a vicious cycle and uh, it's not going to be a good ending. So I'm very strong on trying to get the business world to embrace, first of all, the importance of emotions, but secondly, to recognize that fear is the dominant, increasingly the dominant emotion that's holding us back. And how do we move beyond the fear?
0: And Allison, you're shaking your head, yes. And I know that you've spoken to many business groups about fear too. Do you have thoughts about what John's describing?
3: Well, I love what he was talking about because we just need to make the workplace more human you know, we don't want to be so robotic of like, we just come in and we do our job and we're emotionless and we we're driven, you know, we're driven and we're going to get it done. But like, you miss the human aspect of it. And I think that something that something positive that has come from the pandemic is that I feel like we are connecting, even though we're not physically together, you know, offices, you know, most people are still working remotely. I feel like we are more connected to people personally. Like, I feel like we've gotten to know our colleagues and our coworkers in a different way on a different level, because we were kind of all thrown into this situation together and everybody had fear and everybody had anxiety and everybody was facing the same unknowns. And all of a sudden it wasn't just work challenges. It was childcare challenges and finding, you know, good, good internet connection. So p- p- kids can do school from home and having to move your office at home and just, you know, couples and families being together a lot more, a lot more togetherness than they were used to and having to learn how to deal with people differently and communicate differently. And so I think that that is actually one of the positives that has come from the pandemic is I feel like we are connected at a deeper level, even though we're not together physically. Like we've learned the importance of checking in with one another. And we understand that everybody is dealing with, challenges in their lives. And I think that this pandemic has made us more compassionate, more compassionate and more patient and, you know, compassion and patience aren't, nor, you know, necessary things that were part of the workplace before it was just get the damn job done, right? Be efficient, be be efficient, be cost-effective and get the job done. That's what it was about, right? And, and now I feel like businesses are more human and, um and i think that that's a good thing right i think it is
0: so let's move to sort of like a, a a bigger context um john you talk in the book about moving beyond fear and achieving potential not just for the individual but on a larger scale for society can you talk a little bit about what that might look like
2: definitely it's one of the key themes in the book is the notion you know for decades we've had a whole set of initiatives that fall under the human potential or personal growth umbrella. And it's helping individuals to overcome obstacles and achieve more of their potential. At the same time, we've had a whole other set of initiatives that have gone on in parallel around broadly social change. How do we create institutions, communities, environments that are more uh, helpful to people? The interesting thing is these two initiatives, sets of initiatives have never intersected with each other. It's either all about the individual or it's all about the environment and society. And I believe that we need to bring these two together and recognize that as much work as we do with individuals, if they're not in environments that are supporting and encouraging them, they're never going to achieve as much potential as they could. And similarly, if the environments are all encouraging, but the people are still facing the fears internally, they're not gonna take advantage of the environment. So bringing these two together, I think is absolutely critical to help us all achieve much more impact that's meaningful to us. And at the institutional level, I talk about the shift that we need to make. I think all institutions today, I, I believe again, generalization, large institutions, are driven by scalable efficiency. As, as Allison mentioned earlier, it's this notion of how can we become more and more efficient, do things faster and cheaper? I believe the institutions that are gonna succeed in the future are those that focus on scalable learning. How do we help everyone in the organization to learn faster and not just learning in the form of training programs, but learning in the form of creating new knowledge in the workplace as they confront unexpected situations and learn how to deal with them, but creating an environment where they will support and help that um, to help the people to do that. And similarly, again, I think this happens at many different levels with generalization, but if you look at many movements around the world today, they're driven by threat-based narratives It's all about the threat that we're facing and the terrible things that are gonna happen. I believe that for movements, and I've studied movements throughout history, the most successful movements in history have been those that focused on an opportunity-based narrative that inspired people to say, if we all came together, we could accomplish amazing things. And so how do we get our movements to embrace more of those opportunity-based narratives? And then how do we get our leaders Again, this ties into some of the previous discussion, but I view the transition in leadership that we're going through. The mark of a strong leader today, still, I believe, is the one who has the answer to all the questions. No matter what question, you can count on the leader to have an answer. By the way, if they don't have an answer, time to get rid of them and get somebody who does. I believe the mark of a strong leader in the future is gonna be the one who has the most powerful questions, exciting, inspiring questions, and who will freely admit they don't have an answer and ask for help from others. It sends out a message that questions are actually not just good, they're necessary. And it's great to ask for help. Don't just sit there and try to do it all by yourself. Ask for help and express vulnerability. So. I think that there are a lot of changes more broadly in our environments that are going to be very, can be very helpful and will be very helpful in terms of encouraging people to move beyond fear.
0: Right. And you mentioned, too, that sort of a supportive environment um, is necessary for an individual to move beyond fear. And Allison, you talked about how one of your the expert climber within your group said he was hurting just as much as you were. And it made you feel like you could move beyond your fear because you heard that. So it's sort of similar that um, the leaders, the leaders in these different contexts uh, need to provide that in order for people to move. Is, is that sort of what you're saying, John?
2: Yeah, I think certainly, uh, absolutely. At, at, the, at the high level, the leaders, providing that. I think within the small groups, I I mentioned earlier that I believe that we're going to learn faster and achieve much more impact if we come together in small groups, not just in extreme environments, but even in the business world and everywhere, coming together in small groups becomes critical. And in those small groups, I think an interesting dynamic emerges of support and challenge. On the one side, the participants in those groups are supporting each other. When somebody gets frustrated, and disappointed, they're there to say, no, we have your back. We're gonna make, make sure this, this happens. But they're also challenging each other. They're, they're asking, why can't we get even farther? Why can't we do something even better, have even more impact? And so they're, because they're driven, they're excited about having more impact. It's not just they're challenging each other because they're trying to put each other down. No, they share an excitement about getting more impact and wanting to do things in different and better ways.
0: And Allison, I know that you um, have written about leadership. Do you have anything to add? I mean,
3: I feel like John just summed it up so well. But mm-hmm. I think um, just hitting again on the vulnerability aspect of it is huge. Like, I, I want, you know, I want a leader that is going to get out there and get in the trenches and be willing to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and experience all the same hardships, right. That the rest of the team is experiencing. And when a leader shows that they're willing to get out there and do the hard work along with the team um, and that they have some skin in the game, and they're willing to have that shared experience, I think that is how you build trust and loyalty. And I think that when you have trust and loyalty with your team, that can help them move past fear, right? We trust our leader, We know this person is looking out for our best interests. And while they may not, might not have the answers, you know, we can all work together to get this figured out, but you got to know that the, the leaders got skin in the game too, and that they are willing to uh, undertake the same risks and that they are willing to go through the same crap that they're asking the rest of the people to go through. Right. The leader cannot be in a, in an ivory tower. Like we everyone you know the leaders have to be all you know in there together with the rest of the team they have to be right there with them they can't lead from afar right they want to people want to know that their their leader is willing to go through the same thing and make the same sacrifices that they're being asked to make
2: and I would just add too, leaders showing excitement not just confidence and competence, but excitement they're excited about the opportunity and again not just saying the words but You can see through their daily actions that they really are excited about what's going to, what's going to come.
0: Well, just to sort of wrap things up, we all face fears. We face these unique fears during this time uh, that you mentioned at the top of the show, John. Um, and we also, Allison, you've faced unique fears in these extreme environments, um, and 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 you explain. And both of you uh, had fears that you had to overcome in in your childhoods. What is a, a piece of advice? I guess um, a succinct piece of advice that the two of you might give to folks who are really just challenged right now.
3: So I'll jump in. I'm going to go back to to my Kumbu ice fall experience. But that you can be scared and brave at the same time. Like. That's short and sweet and sums it up. You can be scared and brave at the same time. Just because you're scared doesn't mean that you cannot move forward. Just because you're scared doesn't mean that you can't take big risks. So yeah, you can still you can be scared and brave at the same time. That for me sums it up.
2: No, that's great. And I, I would just say that I think that um, the first the first step or request from me would be to acknowledge your fear. Because again, I think many of us are in denial. We live in cultures where expressing fear is a sign of weakness. And so we don't even want to acknowledge it to ourselves much less share it with anybody else. But recognizing that that's a natural human reaction and there are reasons for the fear. But at the same time, it's a limiting emotion. And if we're just consumed by fear we're never gonna achieve the impact that, that we have the potential to. And we need to cultivate the emotions that will help us to move forward in spite of the fear. And the fear is not going to go away. It'll still be there to Allison's point. But there are emotions that are motivating us to and exciting us to make the next step and, and achieve that, that increasing impact. So,
0: Well, great. Thank you so much, John and Allison,
1: for joining me.
2: Well, pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having us. John Hagel is a business strategist, founded the Silicon Valley-based Deloitte Center for the Edge, and wrote The Journey Beyond Fear, which was released in May. Allison Levine is a polar explorer, former adjunct professor at West Point, and leadership consultant. She authored the book, On the Edge. They spoke with Marcy Krivenin, a producer for Aspen Ideas To Go. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.
0: This podcast is supported by PayPal. The racial wealth gap in the United States is as wide as it was in 1968, and the black community continues to face significant economic barriers, limiting opportunities for long-term wealth creation. PayPal believes that financial health is essential for people to pursue a better future for themselves and their families. That's why PayPal is committed to supporting, sustaining, and investing in Black-owned businesses. Learn more by visiting the newsroom at paypal.com.